0: we begin today watch this hey you awake yeah look up what do you see a bunch of stars what's that tell you well astrologically it tells me that there are thousands of galaxies billions of planets and that there may be life on those other planets. Psychologically, it tells me that this universe is huge and that compared to it, we're pretty small. Theologically, it tells me that even though we are so small, God wants a relationship with us individually. And meteorologically, it tells me that there should be clear skies tomorrow. Why, what does it tell you? Told me someone stole a tent. Oh, right. Missed that one. Yeah. I love the tagline in that video. Don't overlook the obvious. Because if you're sleeping in a tent and you wake up to see the stars above you, then the obvious thing is is that your tent's been stolen. So. Don't overlook the obvious because sometimes we're not fully aware or we do not want to be fully aware of what's really happening, what's really going on. For instance, when we ask someone, How are you doing? Do we really want to know all their feeling and thinking inside? Or are we just looking for, let's say, some simple or some pleasantly interesting answer? So, how are you feeling? Someone might say, well, with the temperature in the 70s, I'm having a pleasant day. Here in August, don't you wish that were so? Or in asking, what are you thinking? Someone might say, well, since you ask, I saw this great show on National Geographic which said that butterflies can taste with their feet and octopuses actually have three hearts. Isn't that interesting? Well, okay. So allow me today to ask you this question. Are these the only kinds of things that people think? You know, pleasant thoughts and sort of interesting things. What if someone asks you, what are you really thinking? And someone then said, well, actually, I was thinking all I could do to get back at my irritating coworker who really hates me. Or what am I really thinking? Well, I'm thinking about tying one on tonight to relieve all my stress. Or truthfully, I was really thinking about how I could slide out of my commitment this weekend to my family so I could go fishing with a friend. And so when we ask that question, what are you really thinking? There's obviously much more going on inside our thoughts than we'd like to admit or even think that we think. Which is why Philippians 4.8 in the New Living Translation points us in this direction and saying... Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable, right and pure, and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And then the God of peace will be with you. But then on the other hand, what happens when we don't have that sense of God's presence and God's peace with us? Well, in the words of the scripture... Our thoughts are not necessarily fixed on things that are true and honorable and right, or things that are pure and lovely and admirable, or things that are excellent or things that are worthy of praise. And why is such an obvious? It's because the Bible tells us the power of your thoughts have a tremendous ability to shape your life for either good or for bad. We know and we understand that reality, for some reason, that truth is not the most obvious thing to us all the time in our lives, is it? Because sometimes we do what? Sometimes we do entertain thoughts that are not so good for us. Because as Romans 7, and 23 in the New Living Translation tells us, I love God's law with all my heart. And so what is the impact of God's law that we love with all of our hearts? its spiritual fruit. Galatians 5:22 and 23 describes it like this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And against such there is no law. So thus I love God's law with all my heart and the result is the fruit of the spirit, all of these good things but look what else Romans 7, 22 and 23 tells us. Yes, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. And you see that power comes disguised as many different things. And as disguised by many things, it's actually only fueled by one single thing. And that one single thing is temptation. And that's because temptation disguised as many things. Therefore, it's not always obvious to you. Let me illustrate with one of the great disguised temptations from my life. So here we go. One of the greatest temptations in my life, this is going to sound kind of strange, is my pre-regret over failure. This is one of the brilliantly disguised temptations that's at war with my mind almost all the time. I'm always anticipating what I have to do, and I'm always wanting to avoid failure in those things I have to do. And the regret I feel from the potential failure of anything I'm tempted to feel even before anything at all fails in my life. Thus, you could say I'm apprehensive about making sure I cross all the T's and dot all the I's. And I can really get jammed up about that in my mind. And so the pre-regret temptation leads me to the sin of anxiety and worry, which directly attacks the love and the joy and the peace in my life. Yes, temptation comes disguised. It's all sorts of things. And these things become obvious to us when we strip away all the other stuff around them. But at the very same time, these foundational temptations, man, they are so easy to overlook when we don't make the effort to look for them. Thus, as Romans 2.12 tells us, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You see, the pattern of this world is for us not to look too deeply, at the foundational temptations we have in our lives. And for me, that means just going on and experiencing my pre-regret over failures before they potentially happen again and again and again. And the pattern of this world for you, just like me, is to not look too deeply at the foundational temptations you have in your life working against the love of God and working against the fruit of the Spirit, which can go on and on and on in your life as well. So thus Romans twelve two goes on to tell us, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we want to do right now. Want to give you a tool and give you insight into how to be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And when that starts taking place, look what else Romans twelve two tells us. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the the tool and the insight God wants you to have today is God pulling the curtain back on temptation and sin that isn't always so obvious to us, which thus we overlook. The first thing God wants to show us that is rather obvious about this is the impact of the world's value system on us. And so let me ask you, is the world really helping you to become a more self-disciplined person? I mean, really, does anything in our society at all encourage self-discipline? Or as the fruit of the Spirit says, our being more patient, our being more kind, are being filled with more goodness or more faithfulness or more gentleness or self-control? Does anything in our culture, in our society encourage that? Not really. In fact, advertisers say what? Hey, you deserve a break today. Have it your own way. We do it all for you. Mountain Dew even goes on so far as to say, Obey your thirst. In other words, just go ahead. Do whatever you want. Thus the world's value system is promoted by advertisers and movies and television and songs and celebrities, while no one is really encouraging you to live a mentally healthy and balanced, spiritually appropriate life. First John 2:16 in the King James echoes this in saying, "For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. So, how do you counteract this? Well, take a look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5 in the NIV, which say, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. In other words, we're not going to play the world's game by the world's rules. So, what is the world's game and its rules? It's this, Just sit back and do nothing. In other words, just let your foundational temptations go on and on and on, overlooking them again and again and again, as if they're not even there. But look what else the scripture says. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to diminish strongholds. So what's a stronghold? Stronghold is a lie that I believe. And we all have strongholds. Here's one of mine, and it's really kind of silly. We have two spoons out of the eight spoons that we eat with in our kitchen that are slightly smaller and less pointed than all the other spoons. And I won't eat my cereal in the mornings with these two spoons, even if i have to grab them out of the strainer or grab them out of the drawer. There's nothing at all wrong with those spoons, except I think they're odd. And maybe they have another purpose that I'm not privy to. I know it's weird, I know it's a lie, but I really try to avoid those spoons. And that's a simple and generally inconsequential stronghold in my life. And we all have them about little things in our lives. But we also have strongholds about much more serious things in our lives. And that's what 2 Corinthians 10.4 talks about. A spiritual stronghold in my life is a lie I believe. Now, a stronghold can be a false value system like materialism or secularism or hedonism. These are all false value systems, and they're all lies. And if we believe them, however, I get a stronghold in my life. Strongholds can be personal attitudes like I'm never going to forgive myself or I'm never going to amount to anything, and if anything bad happens in this world, it's going to happen to me. These are all strongholds. And to me mentally healthy, you have to learn... To demolish strongholds in your life. Because behind every sin is a lie that you believe. Thus the Bible calls Satan the father of sins. And Jesus says, however, I am the truth. And the truth will set you free. So how do we destroy strongholds? Notice next in verse 5 it says that we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take them captive. In the Greek that means we conquer, we defeat We have power over them. We have control over them. And notice, too, the scripture says, We then make them obedient, which in Greek means we're to bring them into submission. How do you do that? Well, the the writer Paul here is talking about how you make your mind actually mind. In other words, how do you make your mind mind you? We do it by taking our minds captive, bringing our minds into submission, meaning we have power over them, and then you make your mind obedient. And if we were to have a time of confession here, I have to tell you guys, my thoughts are not always obedient to what I want to be thinking. They often rebel against me. My mind has a mind of its own. It wants to go in other directions. In fact, this week, as I was working on this message, my mind didn't always want to work on this message. It wanted to watch TV. It wanted to eat pizza. It wanted to keep reading the biography I started. I wanted to go surfing. And so my mind often rebels. And thus when I need to ponder what happens is my mind wants to wander and I need to pray my mind often drifts away. God says we're to take our mind captive and we're to make our minds obedient. What he's saying is you have a choice. Your mind has to listen to you. And then your will has to bring your mind into order. And the reason that people are ineffective in their lives and actually don't enjoy their lives, is because, number one, they've never learned to fight the battle in their mind. And they don't fully understand how temptation works. Now, the apostle Paul said, we are not to be ignorant about how temptation and how Satan works. We're to know how it works, so we won't be caught off guard. And here is how temptation works. And in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the New Living Translation, it tells us the pattern of temptation. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us, and these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Thus, it tells us that temptation is actually a process. It's not one single or one isolated event. You know, people say, I wasn't aware of what was happening. It just caught me off guard. It just came out of nowhere. No, it didn't. Because there are a lot of things that we give into before we lower our barrier to sin. Temptation is a process. And the Bible describes its four phases. Phase one of temptation is desire. If you don't have a desire for something, it's not a temptation. Scripture says temptation starts with our own desire. It starts in you. Doesn't start out there. Doesn't start on TV. It doesn't start on the internet, it doesn't start in a store. It often begins with a natural desire and not necessarily evil because you have a natural desire to do all sorts of things like sleep, you have a natural desire for food, you have a natural desire for companionship, you have a natural desire to succeed in life. These are all God-given drives. But temptation turns a routine desire into a runaway desire and that's what makes it bad. It becomes more important than anything else, and any desire out of control is destructive. A fire in a fireplace can warm your home, but a fire out of control can burn your home down. These are all God's gifts, but when misused and abused, they become destructive, and they lead to the death of something in our lives. Our temptation is an attempt to fulfill a legitimate desire within me in a less than legitimate Or illegitimate way that becomes conceived in my mind. So temptation's phase one is desire. Phase two is that temptation always mixes in some doubt. What you do is you begin to doubt a couple of things. You doubt that God really understands what's going on in you, and then you doubt that God really knows what's best for you. Because when you get tempted, doubt makes you ask yourself this question. Is that what God really says? Did God really say, forgive someone rather than get even with someone? Did God really say, it's more blessed to give than to receive? So whatever's going on in your life, you start doubting God's wisdom about those kinds of things. We see it even in the very first temptation with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They're in a perfect environment. It was paradise, no clothes, no kids. So how could you mess that up? Well, Satan comes along and says, hey, see that tree over there? Did God really say that you're not to eat from that tree? And so what was Satan doing there? He was getting them to doubt God's word. And then he said, God knows if you eat from that tree, you'll be as smart as he is. And so what did the devil do there? Well, he got them to doubt that God really cared about them and really understood them. And every time we give in to a temptation, we are believing a lie. You think you know better, and you think God doesn't know what's best. You think you know it'll make you happy, more so than God knows what'll make you happy. So there's always the desire, and then there's the doubt. Then in phase three in temptation is deception. Satan replaces God's truth with his lie. God says, you can eat anything in the entire garden except this one tree. If you eat from it, you die. Satan says to Adam and Eve, You won't die if you eat from the tree. So what do they do? Well, they look back at the tree, which is the minimum temptation possible at that point. They just look back at the tree instead of turning their attention somewhere else. Then secondly, they wander over to the tree and stand beside it, seemingly another minimal temptation. From there, they kind of start looking at the fruit a little more closely, another minimal temptation. And then as a result, they believe the lie and they eat it. Because as the scripture says, temptation entices us. It lures us. In fact, if you're into fishing, that's what a fishing lure actually does. It entices the fish to bite it. If you're a fisherman, you really want to catch fish, you have to use the right enticement, the right bait. Trout eat a certain kind of bait. Salmon eat a certain kind of bait. Flounder eat a certain kind of bait. Fish will even change what they eat at different times during the day. And how many fish are you going to catch with a bear hook? Zero. None. So obviously, you have to put some bait on the hook to lure them in. So here's a really big question, a really important question that I need to ask you. What is the bait that Satan uses on you? Ever thought about that? Ever aware of that? Do you know the one thing that he always uses on you that keeps him coming back to it because it gets you every time? It may be something from long ago, maybe something someone said to you or did to you, and when it comes out, man, you are so hooked, you immediately get depressed, you immediately get angry, you immediately get worried. This phase is called deception because there's a hook there and for some reason, we keep nibbling on it. Phase four of temptation is disobedience and defeat. Now, we move from desire, something I want, to doubt, our questioning God's word and his understanding us, to deception, believing a lie that Satan's telling us. And then you get to disobedience, defeat, which leads to sin. It begins in my mind. My attention gets focused on something. It becomes my attitude, and then, which I think... Hey, this is one of these attitudes I can act upon. That's how it works in the battle of your mind. And so what's the danger in entertaining a harmless fantasy? Fantasy about what? About anything at all? The danger is this. What I flirt with, I will fall for. Whatever I flirt with, it may just be a cupcake. But if I flirt with the thought of eating a cupcake, um, pretty soon what's going to happen is I'm going to fall for it and I'm going to eat that cupcake. Whatever I flirt with, I fall for it. Thus, the Bible says, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and the end result is death. Exactly what is death? the opposite of living. You're free to choose anything you want in this life. And you're free to make your own choices, yes, but you are not free from the consequences of those choices. The moment you make a choice, you're no longer free, because there are consequences which come with every choice. And they often are unintended consequences. Thus, you reap every time what you sow, even if you don't think that far ahead. Thus, you can't choose a behavior without choosing a corresponding consequence. And it's obvious that is, we tend to overlook that way too often, don't we? Best time to win the battle of temptation is even before it begins. Psalm 119, 112 in the Contemporary English Version says this, I have made up my mind... To obey your laws forever no matter what until you come to that point you keep stumbling and stumbling and stumbling from the consequences and so you have to make up your mind to obey god's laws forever no matter what and here's the consequences of obeying god's law no matter what it's the incredible fruit in your life those consequences the bible tells us are love and joy peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the consequences you want in your life, no matter what. Will you pray with me? Great God, we thank you for your love for us, and you're always like 10 steps ahead of us, looking out for us, and we are just so oblivious to that sometimes. So, Father, help us to realize that so much in life distracts us. Help us to realize, Father, that there are foundational temptations in each of our lives, different for all of us, but they're always there. They're always nipping at us, alluring us, and it's not always very obvious. So, help us, Father, to spend some time with you and to examine when things start going awry. Why is it going crazy? Sometimes it's circumstances beyond our control, but often, God, it's circumstances that are under our control, because our mind just isn't our mind. It's not minding us. Help us, Father, to learn more about ourselves and about how we can live much more in the fruit of life and not in its distractions. So we thank you for this time. May your word be a seed into our lives today, this week, the rest of our lives, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.